0: Well, I hope you have had a great, great week. We have had all kind of fun. We've had strep throat. We've had double ear infections. We've had one parent gone, one get back, the other one gone. So um, I'm not exactly sure where I am this morning. So hopefully uh, God does something miraculous. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to John chapter 16. We are in uh, week three of uh, our transition uh, in the gospel of John, we did 19 weeks, um, uh, of the curtain goes up of all these interactions of Jesus with different people. And then we transitioned because these are, uh, the, the public ministry of Jesus ended. And these are the conversations that he has with his disciples heading towards the cross. And, um, this is a pretty pretty lengthy section, so I've kind of reduced it down. Uh, I had so many people uh, comment last week on the, the incredible job Joey Montoya did. Uh, he just has consistently done an amazing job when he shows up to preach, and uh, we are grateful uh, when when he does that, when he comes in, uh, and helps us out. Um, how many of you are like house remodel show people, like Fixer Upper, Property Brothers, Homes on homes. Can I can I see some of you? Some of the wives are going, <laughs> and some of the husbands are going. <laughs> you, you know you know how that all works. You um, know all those shows kind of have the 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 same deal going on. Uh, you know they just maybe do things a little bit differently, but you know if people buy an older house or whatever, and. Somebody comes in and says, Hey, we can do this. We can do that. We can make this look like it's, you know, brand new and it's a whole different, you know, this, that and the other. And hey, by the way, this is our budget. This is all we've got. So we need to buy the house and you've got this much money left over. And, you know, the funny thing is about all these shows is they build an element of drama into it. Uh, you, you you know what I mean? You know they're kicking along, they gut the inside, and they're working, and all of a sudden the uh oh, uh oh, um, there's an infestation of spider bat mole crickets or something in the wall, and they have to call the owner and go, hey, you know we've been kicking along, but I got bad news. It's going to be twenty seven thousand more dollars. Or you know something's happened, and they all do that. And you think, okay, there's a part of that that just feeds into us uh, because we connect with unexpected drama. Have you ever noticed that somebody will have something happen, and it may not even be somebody you know, but you hear about what's going on, and there's something about that drama that runs a a thread or a theme through you, and you all of a sudden connect with them, and you're like, oh that's horrible. I feel so bad for them. And you're like, oh. And you know, it's just this amazing, you know, oh, hey, wait a second. We didn't account for the fact that, and then their life or their money or whatever, it seems like it's in jeopardy. Miraculously, they all are able to afford the extra money. So <laughs> I don't understand that either. Um, but you know, one of the things that I think we can account for in our life is that there are going to be those moments where unexpected trouble that comes into our lives. Anybody live in that neighborhood? Um I think that all of us actually know that about life. But if we were to sit down and say, hey, is life gonna be perfect? Not one of us would go, Yeah, I'm expecting life to be perfect. We we know that there's gonna be that unexpected trouble, but yet when it comes, we we're kind of like the big wave that comes and hits you and knocks you back, and you're like going, oh, my gosh, what what just happened? Um, something along the way of all that, even though we know the trouble's going to come, the problem for us comes with the fact that, well, this isn't supposed to happen to me, and it's not supposed to happen in this way, and it's certainly not supposed to happen right now. And that's kind of the where we... We register with that unexpected trouble. All of us receive words at times that punch us in the soul and knock us backwards and knock the emotional wind out of us. And the text that we're going to look at today, that's the neighborhood Jesus is going to hang out in with his disciples. We've all heard words like, we're going to have to let you go. I don't love you anymore. We can't find a heartbeat. It looks like cancer. We're going to need to start chemo immediately. I want a divorce. I'm pregnant. I can't get pregnant. There's been an accident. Your daughter's in jail. I'm sorry to inform you. Just the mere mention of those lines take our breath away because we've all experienced that in some level, some shape, some, some form, and it just knocks us backwards. And we could go on and on and on. But life is filled with trouble, and life is filled with troubling statements. I mean, you could be cruising along, doing your own thing, minding your own business, and at any moment get hit with information that will literally turn your life upside down and inside out. And at that point in your life, it's when you face the eye-crossing, mind-numbing, knee-buckling trouble, and we just begin assaulted with questions. Why does this have to happen? Why does this have to happen to me? God, where are you? Do you care? Why aren't you intervening? And maybe one of the The most common lines is the reasoning is this, is God punishing me for something? So let's pick up today in John chapter 16. Jesus' words to his disciples. Jesus went on to say, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Now he's talking about his arrest and his crucifixion, his ascension into heaven. He's saying that there's there's going to come a day when he'll return, but there's a lot packed into those two little words a little while. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. In fact, those two words are going to be mentioned seven times in four verses in this conversation with Jesus. Verses 17 and 18, at this, some of the disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying in a little while you will see me no more? And then after a little while you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Now they don't understand what Jesus is doing. They don't understand what he's saying and it doesn't make any sense to them. So they're focusing all their concentration on the fact that they cannot see a solution to this trouble that they are in. Verse 20, very true, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Now, notice that he doesn't say that their sorrow will be replaced by joy. He doesn't say their sorrow will be replaced by joy. It says that it will turn into, that it is a process, that the difficulty we go through, That the maturing process of angst and difficulty does something within us that we really want to push away from, but it has a maturation to it. It it matures us. Verse 21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish. Do you really forget the anguish? See, I didn't want to be presumptuous and agree with Jesus. Because that's a dangerous thing. She forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born. Into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. And in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be made complete. Um, Joy, obviously, is a really great word, and it's mentioned over and over and over again in these verses, um, but You know, if you've been here through this study of John's gospel, you've noticed that through each section, John will say things like, and this has been said, that has been taught, or this has been done for your joy. The word happiness is never used. It never says, hey, this is done for you to be happy because there's a distinct difference between happiness and joy. If we could define it, define it, we would say that happiness often reflects our circumstances, but joy supersedes them. Happiness reflects our circumstances, but joy supersedes them. Joy rises above our circumstances. Happiness is a reflection of what has happened to us. So we could say things like, are you having a good day? Yeah, I'm having a really great day. I'm I'm really happy right now. Well, why are you so happy? Well, I got accepted. I got hired. I got a raise. I got a compliment. She said yes. The house sold. My neighbor finally moved. The car got fixed. The meal was free. You know, on and on and on. In other words, you're saying, hey, something good happened, so I'm happy. And And our circumstances are often dictating our happiness. And that's not a bad thing. Happiness is actually a great thing, but it's not the best thing. And it's not the lasting thing. Joy actually rises above those circumstances, and we can put a smile on our face and joy out of our deep resources of what God is doing, even when our soul, even when our soul is troubled. And that's the point Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples here as he's heading towards the cross. Um, The the pinnacle of this passage really is verses 25 through 33. Um, Jesus is offering them reassurance in the midst of the difficulty that is about to come. Um, So read those with me. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but I will tell you plainly, about my father. And that day you will ask in my name. And I'm not saying that I will ask the father on your behalf. No, the father himself loves you. By the way, that's really great news. Jesus is saying, because the father loves you, you can ask him directly. You don't need someone to mediate that. You can go to God yourself. You can have this relationship with God because he cares for you, which is a really powerful thought. Uh, In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying I will ask the father on your behalf. No, the father himself loves you because you have loved me, and have loved, believed that I came from God, and I came from the Father and entered the world, and now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Wow. Um, you 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 see this where Jesus is saying, "Look, I know I've been speaking in parables." I know you don't understand a lot of what I've been saying, uh, but there's an hour coming where the Holy Spirit is just going to illuminate you. That that truth is going to be so evident and obvious to you, and you're not gonna you're not gonna be doubting anything that's said anymore. And verses 29 through 30 kind of get interesting. Jesus said the disciples, and Jesus' disciples said to him, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and You do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Basically, they've been clueless this whole time. Now, all of a sudden, they're saying they got it. Now, notice what Jesus says. Now, you kind of have to have this doubting father voice, like the story of where you've been for like in your five hours past your curfew. And you come in and go, hey, um, I've been in the backyard the whole time. And Jesus says, Do you now believe? In other words, do you think I'm crazy enough to believe that you really get it? And the disciples are like, yeah, we get it. And Jesus is going, no, you don't. No, you don't. But they say they've got it. Um, John is using some irony as he recants this, too, as he says the disciples get it, but we know that they don't fully get it because as soon as Jesus is arrested, what do they do? They scatter. When he's crucified, where are they? They're hiding. Now, they gather back, but in that moment of chaos, what, ha- what happens to them? If they really believed that he was from God and he was going back to God and he was God and all that, you, you think they would have left him for a moment? Well, no, okay, because God's up to something big here, and I want to be around to watch this. I want to be a part of the winning team. I don't, you know, I don't want to desert him and him think I'm not in. And yet as soon as the chaos comes, they, they flee because they don't have a full understanding even in the midst of this moment. They're saying they do, but they really don't. And that's kind of the neighborhood we all live in too. Um, so they say, oh, we get it now. And Jesus is like, no, you don't. And then this, this leads us into these last two verses. Jesus says, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home, you will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone for my father is with me. I have told you these things, okay? He's had this whole discourse for this one reason. So that in me, you may have peace. In this world, in the system of the world, in the culture of the world, in the evil of the world, in the way the world does business, you are going to have trouble, but take heart, I have what? Overcome the world. Wow. Um, Jesus says certain things, but he also doesn't say other things. He tells them that he wants them to have peace. He says that peace is found in him. He says, you're still going to have trouble. Now, he doesn't say, I'm going to make you immune to the trouble. He doesn't say, I'm going to take you out of the trouble. He just says, in me, you will have peace even in the midst of the trouble so this morning, I want to lay out three truths for us that we can grab a hold of, take with us, and see if they don't dictate a little bit different way of living. Number one, trouble is inevitable. It's not if, it's when. Everybody take a sip of coffee and think about that one for just a minute. Trouble will find you when you're doing something wrong, intentionally or not. Trouble will find you when you're minding your own business. Trouble will find you when you're bored out of your mind and dozing between reality and sleep. Trouble will hunt you down. It could be any number of things. The definition of trouble is a condition of distress, something upsetting. A source of difficulty, real or apparent weakness, medical problems, disorder or unrest, malfunction, worry, problems, and strife. Jesus says in this world, you're going to have those things. It's not a possibility, it is an inevitability. We're going to have trouble. This is most certainly one of the most difficult things about the human Experience and trying to rationalize whether or not God exists. And if he does exist, what's he doing anyway? Isn't that kind of the question that we we kind of fork out? Why doesn't he intervene? Why wouldn't he pull me out of this difficult circumstance? I mean, anguish and pain call our most basic beliefs of God into question. And just because you put your trust in God, that offers you no insurance against tragedy. A lot of people think, well, I put my faith and trust in Jesus. I told him I believed in him. Then we think somehow God owes us to put us inside of an invisible force field and keep us from ever having a bad day. So when we look at trouble and we look at pain and the difficulties that happen in life, we need to know even now that it's going to hit people in different ways. I mean, some right now, just even talking about trouble and difficulty, you you can fill in the blank right away. You're like, yep, I'm right there right now. And you just speaking of it is sending me into chaos and turmoil. Some say, well, life's pretty good right now, but you know, I've been in a situation or two. I know what it's like. I've come through some. God has taught me some things through it. I've come through some healing. God has... God has been there, so we're all going to perceive jesus's statements differently according to the season that we're in. But can I just say that when when I think about trouble and trials and difficulty, that question comes of why do we have to go through them in our lives i mean isn't that a legitimate question well, i mean why does why does life have to be so hard? Why does life have to be so tough? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons I think number one. I think it's just the result of general sin and pride. Rebellion that is in the world that causes things to be off kilter. I mean, when sin entered the world, the peace and the relationship with God was broken, which means the system of the world that was created was altered. And we can call it the butterfly effect. You can call it the ripple effect. You can call it the consequential effect. You can call it whatever you want. But once things were introduced that were death-driven... Because the soul that sins will die everything has been out of whack, and things continue to be out of whack second um, Timothy three says this understand this in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people they will be lovers of self. You don't know anybody that loves herself do you Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Sounds like my kids. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, filled with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. I don't know about you, but I look at that list and there's only one person who I can really ask this of and be accountable to, and that's me. It's the same with you the same with you. I mean, we've been guilty of all of this, but some of you are like, yeah, but I mean, just a little bit, just a little bit. Um, When when we say sin, that's shorthand for pride and rebellion. My pride and rebellion caused me trouble. But even if it's not the result of my poor choices, sometimes trouble find me because it's the result of other people's poor choices. So either way, we are affected by our infection of sin, whether it's our own or someone else's. Listen, the enemy, our spiritual enemy, which y'all realize we have a spiritual enemy, we're in a battle and sometimes the the thought that crosses the mind is if I can just disrupt this good person and I can throw some chaos into their life, they will begin question God's goodness. But even more, the people around them will begin questioning God's goodness because, hey, this is the best person I know. They're the most faithful person I know. They're the nicest person I know. Isn't that the story of Job? And even Job was trying to hold on to his senses and his wit. And his own wife says, look, why don't you just curse God and die? I'm watching you in misery, and it would be easier to just let you go. And he calls her foolish. Jesus says in this passage, look, I'm not going to rescue out of trouble. Trouble is going to find you. But he does say, I'm going to give you what you need to make it through the trouble. He doesn't say, Hey, I had no idea that all could happen to you. God knew that that was going to happen to you. Um, you know what kind of is eerie? It's, there, there's a, a struggle either side of this, is that God knows what's going to happen to us in the next 10 years, right? Is God going to wait 10 years to prepare you to do battle with what's going to happen in 10 years? Or is he going to prepare you now? God is going to let you go through some things right now that you're going to be like, what the world is that about? And then 10 years down the road, you're going to go, oh my gosh. I'm in that season now. I, I know where I've got to hold on to. I know who my anchor is. I know where hope is. I know where peace is found. I know, I know, I know. Well, how do you know? Well, because you went through hell 10 years ago. And not nothing easy about that, but let's just be honest There's that maturing process that God is always... It's not the destination, remember? I mean, the destination is the easy part. It's the journey of the destination that God works in us, that he brings something so powerful that is mind-boggling. Jesus' words teach us that he may not allow us to escape from the trouble. He just says, I'm going to give you the strength to handle the trouble. I don't know about you, but when I go to... A deathbed, when I go to somebody that is extremely sick or some bad situation, I, I want, I, part of me wants to go, okay, you need to reach in your little bag of pixie dust and you need to sprinkle or say just the right words. So everything's going to be, and yet intuitively, I know there are no right words. So just go in and just be present and just be there for them and love on them. And yet there's something in us that keeps saying, I've got to fix this for them. I got to fix this for them. And we end up making it worse rather than just going, I don't understand. But I know God didn't abandon you. And even though you may not sense him, you're seeing. And I don't know when. But one day you'll look back and it's not going to make it go away. It's not going to make the hurt easier. It's not going to make any of that. But you're going to realize, oh my gosh, he was right there. He was right there. Even though I felt like he wasn't. The second thing I think is that when trouble comes, our perspective on trouble is limited. Can, can we just say that? Is that is that okay? Is that, does that make you mad? Our perspective on trouble is limited. It's, it's incomplete. I mean, that's where these two little words, a little while, become such big big players in this text. Listen, seven times in four verses, that little phrase, little while. A little while, a little while, a little while, a little while. I don't know about you, but that drives me crazy because, listen, a little while in the ice cream shop is not the same thing as a little while in the dentist chair. Uh. Am I lying? A little while. When your kids say, hey, when are we going to Disney World? And you say, in a little while. Well, what does that mean? Let's see, it's uh, January, we're going to go in November. It's just a little while. Just a little while. The difference is perspective. One of the things I think we've been noticing about John's gospel and what the, the disciples have been doing as Jesus starts talking about his death and Jesus starts talking about what he's going to do and he's not going to be with him anymore, they keep trying to talk him out of it. What do you mean you're going away? No. And Peter. I'll never stand by and watch you die, Lord. I'll lay my life down for you to protect you. I won't leave you. They don't really know what they're saying. They don't know the implications of it. But listen, if, if they could look back now, they would be like, Oh, Jesus, thank you for not listening to us when we tried to talk you out of the cross. I mean, there's so many things about our faith life that we don't understand. And yet, I mean, you think about some of the prayers that you've prayed through the years and you like beg God, God, this is exactly how this needs to go. This is the way this thing needs to work out because I feel it, I see it. And if you'll just do it this way, it's all gonna be like it's never been before. And God goes, you're right. It would be like it's never been before and you would never recover from it if I gave you what you think you want and need. Because our perspective is so limited. I mean, God is looking at the pre-beginning He's looking at where we are and he's looking at where we're going and he's looking at where it's going to end up. And we're looking in this one little moment. I mean, how do we in that one little moment make a decision that is going to be the best thing for the rest of our life? We don't. That's when Jesus says, I know you don't understand this now, but this is the way that peace comes. I mean, Paul said in 2 Corinthians that God gave him a thorn in the flesh. Now, it doesn't tell us what the thorn is, and people have speculated. But see, if we knew what the thorn was, that we would become obsessed with that particular condition. And everybody would have that condition. And it would be our excuse of why we can't love God. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That's a matter of perspective. It's not when everything is going great, but it's perfected in our weakness. Paul then says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me for the sake of Christ. I am content with weakness, with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I don't know about you, but that is a difficult word to say. But Paul is so convinced that God is at work in his weakness, in his brokenness, in his bad days, in all the things. I mean, shipwrecked, snake bitten put in prison, beaten, flogged, all those things. He says, yet, yet for for your sake, yet for your sake. It would have been easy to go, hey God, I just got bit by a snake again. I just got shipwrecked again. I just got put in jail again. But yet he sees that there's something bigger at work in what the enemy is intending in a direction. You remember in Joseph's life, Joseph told his brothers, you intended it for evil. It, we all have it. We have things that happen in our life that somebody intends for evil and God says, no, 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 no. I'm working something out in this even though it was started with an evil purpose. I'm going to work something in you and it may not be the best situation. It may not be the most fun to go through, but I'm at work. And ultimately, isn't that the question? Can I trust God is at work even when things aren't going the way that I think they ought to go? When I'm weak, then I'm strong, he says. Man, that's difficult stuff. Psychologist Robert Emmons sorted out people's life goals and put them into four basic categories. Four umbrellas. Personal achievement happiness. Relationships and intimacy, faith and spirituality, and contributing something lasting to society. He said, pretty much everybody's life goals fall in in those four categories. These are his words. People who invest much or most of their energy into the goals of personal achievement and happiness are the most vulnerable to the adverse circumstances of life huh? People who invest much or most of their energy into the goals of personal achievement and happiness are the most vulnerable to the adverse circumstances of life. Why? Well, it's because of their perspective. They're saying, this would make me happy in this moment. And so they chase after things. Those things will elude you, oftentimes that you most seek. Some of you are trying to register that one. You think of the things that you have given the most passion, the most energy to, and sometimes you catch it, and it about destroys you. Sometimes it eludes you, and it drives you insane, and you miss the joy of where you are and who's around you and what you have right there because you're always chasing the next shiny object. Pearl of great price the Holy Grail, whatever it is, be careful what you seek, you may find it. Think about the wisest person whom you've ever met. Was their life trouble-free? Or had they faced lots of troubles and God had given them strength to stand up underneath it? Did they have some emotional scars and some spiritual scars? Well, isn't that by definition what gives somebody with deep waters in their soul the fact that they've gone through some significantly difficult things? What's the old saying? A seasoned sailor isn't built on the dock. He learns through the adversity of the open seas. Our lives are strengthened because of the adversity. I know people say this all the time. You know, what what doesn't kill you will make you stronger. I always want to hit somebody in the mouth when they say that. But there is this part of the maturity process. As painful as it is for us to say this, when you and I go through a trial, it is an opportunity for us to grow, grow in relationships, because people rally around us. If we've got good people, we grow in our priorities and perspectives because it pushes us outside of our comfort. James 1 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I think the third thing that we can get from this passage is that we need to cling to what we know, not what we feel. I don't know if you've noticed this in your life, but feelings can't be trusted. Feelings oftentimes are circumstantial. That's why in these last few chapters, Jesus has been sharing things with the disciples before he leaves. He's giving them objective truth. He says, I want you to know that I have to leave, but I'm not going to... I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to give you my spirit. It's better for you that I go because the spirit will come. He says, I want you to know that I'm the vine, which I talked about last week, and we're just the branches, but we got to be connected to the vine or we die. When we're in the middle of trouble or pain, difficulty, we can't trust our feelings and perspectives because they're limited. And our feelings will lie to us because our feelings don't want to be hurt anymore and they want to choose the easiest route. And it's not always the easiest route is the best decision. And that's a hard truth to grab. Listen, here's some truth we need to get about our feelings. You are not your failure. You are not your sin. You're not your shame. You are not your addictions. You're not your kid's home run. You are not your kid's failing grade. You are not your husband's job or your wife's job. You are not your dirty house. You are not your Pinterest page, your Facebook status or your Twitter followers. You are not your circumstances. So when we're in the midst of trouble, we have to ask ourselves, who's God? What do I know about him? And that fleshly part of us, that cynical part of us, we want to miss it. And we want to be defined by our own circumstances. But but listen, this is true in our own life. There are decisions that I make that my three 12-year-old boys and my little five-year-old, they don't like. I mean, they pout, they yell, they scream, they look at me like, I wish you were dead. And I'll say... I know that that doesn't feel real good right now, but but who am I? You're a crazy man. Outside of that, you're my dad. Do I love you? Am I for you? Do I want you to have good things? No. Well, that's their what? That's their feelings talking. Isn't that what we do with God. When I ask honest questions about who God is, do I come back to, man, he's good. He's for me. He's not against me. He's this. He's not that. But we wrestle with that, and we're like, where are you? Why won't you let me have this? Why aren't you bringing me out of this? Why isn't the invisible force field? Where's Wonder Woman, by the way? I have to get back and be honest with the truth of what I know as opposed to the feelings of what I'm feeling in that moment. And by the way, we felt some feelings that led us down a road that we wish we'd have never felt. Because our mind and our chemicals will conspire against us. Things are bad at home. Don't be surprised when somebody comes along that says the words that you've been longing to hear from your spouse. And all of a sudden you feel your mind and your heart being attached to this person because, oh, they're so nice. But you're not living life with them. You're not paying bills with them. You're not raising kids with them. You're not arguing over how you're going to pay that bill or this bill. And so your mind begins to convince you, get away from this person that you've been with for all these years, and you begin attaching. We, we've talked about this before. It's called limerence. It's a chemical process that our body will convince us, this is the new greatest person. This is God's gift to me. No, it's not. It is a distraction of the enemy to destroy not only you and that other person, but every kid and every safe and loving person in your life. And you will battle them because they're trying to speak truth to you. But, oh, you feel what you feel. It sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good is he is stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Hey, here's a thought. If life was trouble-free, why would God find it necessary to describe himself as a refuge? Why do we need a refuge? Let me tell you why. Because life is hard. And because our feelings get hurt. That's the reason when we grew up, they said, hey, rub a little dirt on it. I'm like, how do you rub dirt on your feelings? But it was the act of, okay, I put something on me. Now, let's just keep going. Now, I'm not saying that's great advice. But ultimately, our feelings will lead us in some dark directions. We need to be what? Truth, truth, truth. God says, I know you're going to have trouble. I'm going to do everything I can to prepare you, but you're going to have to trust in me. Some of us say, well, maybe God's punishing me. (laughs) Listen, he's not punishing anyone because the punishment has already fallen on his son, Jesus. Some say, well, God just doesn't love me. Well, he's already demonstrated his love because he gave everything. He gave a son for you. God says, I've demonstrated my love. I've demonstrated that I care. I've demonstrated that I want to overcome the trouble in this world because I gave you my son. And you can be mad at God. And you can get angry with God. and You can curse God. and You can ignore God. And you can have a defiant attitude. And you say, look, I don't believe that God exists. And all that really gets you is that you just have to walk through the trouble all alone because there's still going to be pain. And by the way, you may not believe in God, but he believes in you. He says, I'm offering you a refuge in the pain. I'm offering you pain that will have a purpose, not that he is inflicting it on us, but he allows us to go through it. Martin Luther, who was a German theologian in the 1500s, said that trials and difficulty, or for lack of a better term, pain and suffering, the role that it plays in all of our lives that is it empties us of ourselves. It takes self-sufficiency away. And that's why the world says that Christianity is a crutch. Well, you know what? My name's Craig. I need a crutch because I can't handle what life throws at me. His name's Jesus. We may not think we need him, but in reality, we need him more than the air we breathe. And all through our lives, pain is just there. We're going to close in just a second. for a little while, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Roman 8 says it this way, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? it all these things, we are what? more than conquerors through him who loved us. 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the broken hearted. So when we're in the midst of trouble, when we're in a trial, when the pain and the scriptures say, go to God and lift those things up to him and pray to him. You see, here's the thing about prayer. A lot of times prayer for us is, God, let me tell you how you need to do this. Here are my needs. Here are my wants. Here are my expectations. Here's the time frame. And here's where I'd like to be when you do all this. Maybe, maybe, maybe I need to, to think a little bit differently. Maybe, maybe God is going, you know what, Kelly? I know what you're going to go through in 15 years. And you need this experience to prepare you for that experience. And it, and it doesn't it make any sense to you right now. But trust me, what do you know about me, Kelly? And who are you? And do you really think that I care for you? So how are we supposed to pray when, when life is painful and we don't see a way out? Well, maybe we should pray something like this. Father, this, is, uh, this stuff that's going on in my life right now, this is what I would like to see happen. This is what I would like for you to do from where I sit from my vantage point. It makes complete and total sense. God, this seems like a no brainer to me. But see, that's an incomplete prayer. That's not a bad place to start. But we're basically saying what what I want from you, God. But see, God is the only one that fully knows truly what we need and how we need. So maybe our prayer then shifts to, but but I believe that you are who you say you are, and that you're good, and even if I can't see how or why this is happening in this moment, and even though I want this to change, even more than that, I, above all, I I want you to have your way and to move in me so that I grow. So I can experience the goodness I say I believe in in your sovereignty because I know that you're all powerful and I know that whatever you do and however you do it, it's going to be the right answer. Just help me to trust you because right now I don't see it and I'm really struggling. Now that's a hard prayer. But there's something about when we get ourselves out of the way and we let him move and work, it doesn't say that the trouble's just going to dissipate or it's going to just all clear out and just be. Whoosh. But at least we're trusting in his purpose. And remember, a lot of things that happen to us have nothing to do necessarily with us. It has to do with an enemy trying to destroy us or somebody close to us. And I know you're thinking, man, did you have to say that? I really did. I felt compelled I had to say that because I have to say that to me. Isn't it tough? And it's tough because it's hard for us to trust. So maybe the first prayer then we have to pray is, "Is God, I'm a control freak. And I just want to see you work in me so that I can give up the illusion of control. God, I'm a control freak. And I just want you to work in me so that I can give up the illusion of control. Go to your prayer closet and work on that one. That's a hard prayer. Ultimately, the question then comes, is God good and is he trustworthy? And for people that are searching, they're like, hey, can I just like rub the genie bottle and he'll like give me three wishes? No. But you can lean into him and you can feel his hand. You can know his voice and you can trust his promise. Let's pray. Father, our prayer this morning is that Your great work is done in us and through us, and Lord. We have so many in here that are struggling with just difficulty, God. They're in a season, oh, a season that doesn't seem like it's going to end. And so, Lord, as we press in towards You, Lord, we ask for Your face to shine upon us, for Your graciousness. To be our way. And Lord, to feel your hand leading us, to see your truth cover us and not get lost in the endless chaos of our feelings, to go back to what we know, and what we know to be true. And that's that you are for us and not against us and that you love us. In the name of Jesus. Amen.